0: All right, so here we go. Uh, I'm going to answer this today. I'm going to answer a couple of questions. Number one, I'm going to answer what is Pentecost, okay? Number two, I'm going to primarily answer what is Shavuot. If you've never heard of that, you're going to learn about it today. Shavuot. How are Pentecost and Shavuot related? Number three. And then number four, how does the story of Ruth fit into any of this? (coughs) Ooh, swallowed the wrong way. Give me a second. All right. <clears throat> Whew, sorry about that. Anybody listening to the podcast? That was super weird for a second. All right. Let me start with Shavuot. Anybody, has anybody, let me just ask you this. If I, if you, if I talked to you this morning, don't raise your hand because of course you've heard of it. Has anybody in the room ever heard of Shavuot? Angela, praise the Lord. All right. All right. So Shavuot is the festival of weeks and it is held five weeks after the second night of Passover. Traditionally, in Jewish culture, um, it was originally Shavuot. The festival was originally tied to an ancient grain festival, but eventually became the holiday that um, that marks God's giving of the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay, so Shavuot ultimately. Was the celebration, it's the festival of weeks, it's a, a, a grain festival, but what it became was a celebration, a holiday, celebrating God giving Moses the Torah, the law, right? Pentecost is when Christians celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In Greek, the word Pentecostos means 50, so Pentecost is 50. Fifty days after Easter, likewise Shavuot is fifty days after the second night of Passover. So the word Pentecost comes from the Greek word Pentekostos, which means fifty. Good. Is this uh, okay. I know this is a lot, but uh, you know I want to teach you this. Um, so Pentecost, praise God. What is Pentecostal? It's it's simply saying fifty days after the uh, Passion of Jesus. Okay. But Shavuot is the celebration that all the Jews came into town in order to celebrate, which is why in Acts 2, everybody is there. Y'all good? Okay. Um, Both holidays have to do, both of them, have to do with man receiving gifts from God. Shavuot is a harvest of grains that they receive because of God's provision on the land and, of course, later on, Uh, God giving the law. Pentecost is when we celebrate God giving the Holy Spirit or the holy breath in immersion and dwelling in believers. However, to be clear, Pentecost is not a celebration of Pentecostal, which is kind of a joke, but it is a matured expression of Shavuot. Holy Spirit falling on Shavuot is absolutely on purpose, but the question we have to ask today is, why? What's the purpose for the Holy Spirit being given on the exact moment when they're celebrating the um, giving of the Torah to the people of God? just, Just think about this for a minute. What would be the purpose of God giving His Spirit to indwell those who are in Christ? On the day that the Jew, the people of God, would be celebrating God giving them the law. Really interesting. Traditionally, the Jews read Song of Songs on Passover. Passover is the holiday, of course, commemorating the death. That death passed over the Jews in, in, uh, in Egypt's last plague. So on Passover, Song of Songs was typically read, traditionally. But the book of Ruth was traditionally read on Shavuot. Why? Because of Ruth, who was a Moabite, a Gentile, accepting the Torah, God and the law for herself. That's why the book of Ruth was read on Shavuot. But today, I want to look at Ruth, and I want to glean, no pun intended, because Ruth is gleaning in the story. That's a little hidden thing. Anyway, um, that's me being a dad. I want to glean from it, from this story, some truths about, ultimately, Pentecost. So uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a quick summary of what happens in Ruth 1 through 3, because uh, I know most of y'all read through your Bibles in 90 days, multiple times a year. But, uh, but um, for the most part, there's probably a good chance that you have not read the book of Ruth in a really long time, if I just had to throw a shot in the dark. So, maybe you have. Amazing. If not, let me just give you a summary in case you have forgotten, because Ruth chapter 4 won't make sense unless you know what happens before this. So, here we go. Ruth, the book of Ruth, is considered uh, a novella style, which means it has historical people and events, but it's weaved into a broader story telling us something else as well. The author is writing to tell us something extremely specific, and it's very similar. The style, though it contains true historical people, the style of writing is very similar to how Jesus used parables, right? He was using stories to speak to a truth that was deeper than the story. That's the style of the book of Ruth. There is a person Ruth. There is a person Boaz. There is a celebration. However, the writer of Ruth is not just writing to tell us there is a person named Ruth. It's writing to tell us a story deeper than just the reality of there being a person Ruth. Good? Okay. So Elimelech, a man of importance, this is in Ruth 1, is married to Naomi. And they have two sons... Mahlon and Shileon, two sons. They're from Bethlehem. Bethlehem sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're from Bethlehem in Judah, but when famine hits the land, they move to Moab in order to survive the famine. So they move from uh, Bethlehem in Judah to Moab. While in Moab, Elimelech, the father of the family, dies. His two sons marry Moabite women, who are named Orpah and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth. Then, ten years later, Mahalon and Shilion die, leaving Naomi with her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi gets word that the Lord had redeemed the famine, and she decides to go back home to Bethlehem, um, and he redeemed it with abundant harvest, it says. So Naomi begs the daughter-in-laws to go home to Moab. She sets out to go back to Bethlehem, but she begs Orpah and Ruth to go back home to their lands and their gods. Okay? She begs them to go home. Orpah leaves and goes home. Orpah's like, praise God, see you later. I'm not having a nice life. Um, But Ruth clings to Naomi. So let me read this. I just you don't have to turn there. This I just want to read what it says about what Ruth did. In verse 16 in in Ruth chapter 1 it says this. Tearfully Ruth resisted. Please don't ask me again to leave you. I want to go with you and stay with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will now be my people and your God will now be my God. Wherever you die, I will die there too. That's where your people will bury me next to you. Nothing but death itself will separate me from you. So help me, God. Okay? So that's how Ruth responds. So Ruth goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem. Y'all good so far? Okay. Once back in Bethlehem, Ruth finds herself gleaning, there's the word, from the fields owned by Boaz, Naomi's relative. Boaz blesses them, Naomi and Ruth, and later decides to be the kinsman redeemer for the family. Now let me read this little footnote that Dr. Brian Simmons has right here about the kinsman redeemer um, because it's really significant. So let me read this um, on the right page. Here we go. Uh, The Hebrew terms gyal means kinsman redeemer. This term is used in various forms ten times throughout chapters three and four in Ruth. It signifies a legal function performed by a near relative. Listen to this: If a widow dies, or excuse me, if a widow was childless, a close male relative was to empower was empowered, excuse me, to redeem her through marriage and buy back her property. This is in Leviticus 25:25. The kinsman redeemer ensured that the widow would not lose her inheritance rights and provided her with offspring. In the case of a widow, um, excuse me, in the case of Naomi, she had other near relatives living in Bethlehem who would qualify to be her kinsman redeemers, meaning that Boaz was was perhaps one of several candidates. And we're going to see this in a second. So the kinsman redeemer would marry a widow and redeem the dead man's family through her. Kinsman redeemer, okay? If none of this makes sense to you, that's okay. I'm preaching on something totally different, but I want to give you the context. So it's okay if, you, if, it's, if it's going a little far. But in order for Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer, like I just said, there is a relative that is first in line in front of Boaz who has the rights to be the kinsman redeemer for the family. So for Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer, the first in line would have to essentially say no. So there's a few hurdles that, that Boaz has to jump over before he steps in to be the kinsman redeemer. All that being said, let's go to Ruth chapter 4, and I'm going to read starting in verse 1. Anybody got any questions or anything like that before we go? Okay, cool. If you do, just shout them out. That's totally cool. Praise the Lord. All right. Verse one. No sooner had Boaz, Matt, can you push those lights, the house lights up far right, um, right there. There you go. Thank you. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the city gate and sat down when the kinsman redeemer, <clears throat> first in line, of whom Boaz had spoken, came, uh, came passing by. This is in the Passion translation, by the way. Boaz called to him, "Come over here, friend. Sit down with me. We have some business to attend to." So the man went over and sat down. Verse two. Then Boaz invited ten men of the city council and said, "Please sit down here with us." After they were seated, after they were seated, Boaz turned to the kinsman redeemer and said, "Sir, Naomi has returned from the country of Moab, and she's selling the piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought you ought to know about it." Buy it if you want. Okay, he's only talking about land. We can make it official in the presence of those here and in the presence of the elders of our people. As the kinsman redeemer, you have the right first of refusal. So redeem it if you choose to, but if not, tell me, so I will know as I am next in line. I want you to listen to this. The man replied, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. Notice A name is not given to this man. That's on purpose. The man replied, I will redeem it. Verse 5, then Boaz added, Oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Therefore, it will be your responsibility to father a child in order to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this time, the kinsman redeemer balked and said, in that case, I'm not able to redeem it for myself, listen, without risking my own inheritance. Take my purchase option of redemption yourself, for I cannot do it. Remember that. Verse 7. At that time in Israel, in order to finalize a transaction concerning redeeming and transferring property, a man would customarily remove a sandal and give it to the other party, making the contract legally binding. Can you imagine if that were today? You buy a piece of property, and the way that you confirm it is you take off your shoe and you give it to the other person and leave. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so when the kinsman redeemer said, to, and so one day, you know, what's the, what's the proof that you own this property? I've got a sandal right here. You know what I mean? Uh, verse eight. So when the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, "Take my purchase option of redemption for yourself, he took all the sandal, gave it to Boaz. Then Boaz turned to the elders and announced publicly, "Today you are witnesses that I have purchased the land uh, from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Sheleon and Mahalan." Verse 10: I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahalan's widow, to be my wife. I will raise children with her who will maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance so that the name of the dead man, um, the dead, may not be cut off from his village and from his family line. Today you are witnesses of this transaction. Almost there. Verse 11, Then all the elders and all the people who were at the gate said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. Lord, this is so huge. May you become famous in Bethlehem. May you become famous in Bethlehem. May you become very prosperous. And may Yahweh give you children by this young woman and through them, May your family be like the family of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We might get into that, maybe not. Um, Really interesting. I want you to remember this. Uh, May Yahweh give you children. That's multiple, okay, is what's prayed over them. Verse 13, so Boaz and Ruth married, and they became one as husband and wife. Yahweh opened Ruth's room, and she bore a son. Then the women of Bethlehem blessed Naomi. Praise Yahweh, who never abandoned you, nor withheld from you a kinsman redeemer. I want you to hear this. Praise Yahweh, who never abandoned you, Israel, nor Israel, withheld from you a kinsman redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. Listen. May this child renew your life and sustain you in your old age. May your daughter-in-law, who loves you dearly, be more to you than seven sons could ever be, for she has given you a wonderful grandchild. Then Naomi took her grandson and cuddled him in her arms and cared for him as if he were her own. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, At last... Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Obed means servant of Yahweh. Servant of Yahweh. Okay? They named him Obed. I want to listen. Listen to this. And he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Listen, now, this is how it ends. Now, these are the descendants of Perez. Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Adab, excuse me. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, who had a famous son, King David. King David. Ruth has many meanings. It could mean beautiful, delightful, shepherdess, satisfied, refreshing, etc. She was originally, in the beginning of the story, married to Mahlon, which means sick, worn out, afflicted, and wounded, and is a picture of the law. Let me remind you, and I'm going to try to do this in the best way I know how, Let me remind you of Exodus 19 and 20. Do you guys remember the message I taught on Exodus 19 and 20 at Sinai when the law was given? Do you guys remember that? Some of you? Some of you? Okay. So just to give you a recap, they come out of Egypt. They go to the mountain. The Lord sets up a wedding covenant, a wedding ceremony for them and he tells them in Exodus 19 he says he says you will be for me a kingdom of priests okay but before he says that he makes the statement the whole world is mine the whole world is mine but you will be for me a kingdom of priests right so we've seen the old testament as Israel being the people of God exclusively and everyone else not being the people of God The problem with that is in Exodus 19, God declares the entire world is his, and the Israelites were not just going to be his exclusive people. They were going to be a kingdom of priests, and who are priests? Mediators between man and God. So, the whole world is mine, but you're going to be, for me, a mediator to tell the whole world that they're, in fact, mine. That was Exodus 19, okay? So he says, for three days, I want you to consecrate yourselves. On the third day, there's going to be the blast of a trumpet, which is the trumpet of Jubilee, which is the day that all the slaves are set free, lands returned to its original owners, and debt is paid. On the third day, there's going to be the blast of a trumpet. When that happens, you're to come up. I'm going to speak to the people. Okay? Three days later, there's the blast of a trumpet. The Lord descends on the mountain, and he descends in specific things such as thunder. Which is really significant because in Acts 2, the Greek word used for tongue is the same Greek word used in the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, for thunder. So Shavuot is the celebration when God gives the people the Torah, which happened at Sinai when the Lord descends in thunder. Acts 2, the celebration of Shavuot, which we call Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends in fire, and they receive tongues, which is the same exact Greek word used and is translated in Exodus as thunder. So, so uh, is the Lord trying to show us some things that maybe we've never seen? Right? So, they come out, the Lord descends... They start going up the mountain like they were told to do. The Lord goes to Moses and says, Tell them not to force their way up, or I will turn against them. Huh? You said to come up. You said on three days Three days later that we're to come and you're to speak to us. It's three days later, we're coming to speak to you, and now you're saying you're going to kill us if we come up the mountain. So either God has completely, radically changed his mind, or... The Israelites never consecrated themselves, which made it legal for them to climb the mountain into marriage. What is consecration? For them, it was removal of that which identified them as slaves. God doesn't marry slaves. He marries free people, and they were free, yet they still lived in an identity that said they were slaves. So for three days, which is the number of perfection, it's the number of the Trinity, it's the number of days from Jesus' death to resurrection, etc., for three days, very significant, you are to consecrate out of you the slave mentality so that you can receive marriage with God mentality, right? So the only thing that stands between where they started and now God suddenly turning against them is the fact that they did not let go of the slave mentality. How do we know this? Because if you go into Exodus 20 after the Ten Commandments, they tell Moses, you go talk to God for us. We'll stay back here. You go talk to God and then come tell us what he says. Why would they do that? Well, in Egypt, Pharaoh went and talked to the gods, and he would come back to the Egyptians and tell them what the gods had to say. So Israel has come out into the wilderness, and they have essentially rejected the marriage with God to get a religion like they experienced in Egypt. And God shows up in all of the ways that the gods of Egypt would have shown up to the Egyptians if they were mad. To show them that he is not like the gods of the Egyptians. So that, and what happens immediately, if you go back to Exodus 20, immediately after they tell Moses, you go talk to God for us, we'll stay back here and we'll let we'll hear what you've got to say, but we're not gonna go talk to God. What happens immediately after that? You know what begins? The law. And there's one problem with that. Uh, Abraham was in covenant with God, never received the law. Isaac was in covenant with God, never received a law. Jacob was in covenant with God, never received a law. You and I are in covenant with God through Jesus, and guess what? We never received the law. This is the law love. And, I, and so I use this example. I use the example. Uh, I love my wife, and so I don't go sleep around with other women. The reason I don't go sleep around with other women is not because there is a contract that I've made with her that says, if you go sleep around with other women, you will die. No, the reason I don't go sleep around with other women is because I just love my wife. So love comes with its own law written on our hearts, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen, right? Okay, So they were designed to enter into a love covenant that would produce a law on the inside by way of love. Instead, they chose to reject the love covenant and enter in by way of works. And God met them where they were. And just like in 1 Samuel 8, when they asked for a king and God knows this is not best for you, He gives them a king. Why? So that once that whole scenario played its way out to exile and leaving the country and things burned to the ground, Jesus could step into the story and then say, wait a minute, maybe what we want is not exactly what's best for us if it goes against what God wants. Same thing with Exodus 20 is the Lord shows up and he says, if you want a religion where you approach me by way of the law, I'll give you exactly what you want. But there's going to come a day when Jesus steps in, God himself steps into the chaos and from the inside undoes the whole works mentality in order for us to be what we should have been since Exodus, which is Mary, the bride of God. You and I, priests to the world, that tells the world that they are his too, but we are mediating by way of what we're hearing to them when they don't have ears to hear it. It doesn't mean the Lord's not speaking it to them. It means they don't yet have ears to hear it, which is why we are a kingdom of priests to tell them what they don't have ears to hear. Right? So, Moab is where um, Ruth is. And Orpah are from. Moabites were specifically in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. The Jews were specifically told to not marry Moabites. Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. If you want to go back and read that, you can. So Ruth begins the story married to Mahalon. Okay? Mahalan meaning, um, I lost my page. Mahalan meaning sick, meaning essentially the law. She's married to the law. Mahalan dies, and she clings to Naomi, a Jew, to return to Bethlehem in order to ultimately meet Boaz. Y'all good so far? There it is. It means sick, worn out, afflicted, and wounded, okay? So, Ruth was a Moabite Gentile. The first kinsman redeemer is not named, and he's not named on purpose. He represents, just like Ruth's first husband, he represents the law, that which came by way of the law. Boaz, both in tradition, both all throughout the New Testament, etc., when Boaz is referred to, he's referred to as a representative of ultimately Jesus. So Ruth, a Gentile, her husband, who was a Jew, died, and therefore left her on the outside of the Jewish community. Go back to Exodus 19. You are to be a kingdom of priests to bring the world in. But something dies there, and because of what died at that place, the Gentiles are left out. And you find yourself in the New Testament with a narrative where the Jews are here, and they refuse to even look the direction of Gentiles. Who in Exodus were originally supposed to be included in this if they would be in their rightful place. So Ruth, tell me, just just start making. Ruth is a Gentile, and her husband, who is a Jew, who represents the law, dies, and therefore she is left outside of the Jewish community. She then clings to a mother who would lead her to Boaz who would lead her to that which represents Jesus. Let me, let me just read. I got two verses real quick. Two verses. Did I save it? No, definitely not. All right. But I got it. Galatians 4. I want you to hear this. Um, Lord, it's only 1108. Praise the Lamb of God. Um, <laughs> Galatians 4, 25 through 26. Listen to what it says. The first covenant was born on Mount Sinai, birthing children into slavery children born to Hagar. Hagar represents the law given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. The the Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem today who are currently in bondage. In contrast, there is a heavenly Jerusalem ahead of us or in front of us, which is our true mother. She is the free woman birthing children into freedom. Okay, so Ruth clings to a mother that ultimately leads her to the feet, literally, of Boaz. Naomi is the Zion mother, we might say, that we cling to in order to encounter our true kinsman redeemer. The first kinsman redeemer, which represents the law, is unwilling or incapable of redeeming because it would not risk its own inheritance. Let me just read this note to you. I wrote If the kinsman redeemer, traditionally, if the kinsman redeemer bought the land, married Ruth, and had a son, when that son got older, the land would be given to him as his rightful inheritance as an heir. Thus, the kinsman redeemer would lose every bit of money that he paid for the land for and, at that point, would have an entire family to also care for. In other words, the cost was extremely high for the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer would step in, let's say the first one, the first kinsman redeemer, in order to be the kinsman redeemer, he would buy the land from Naomi, okay? He would buy the land, and he would marry Ruth. By marrying Ruth, he was also required to bear a son to Ruth. And that son was raised as if he is the inheritor of Mahlon, not Boaz, okay? It's continuing on the dead man's inheritance and name and legacy. So when the baby was raised up and he was old enough to receive the inheritance, the land that the kinsman redeemer purchased with his own money would be given to the son of Ruth. So he loses all that money. On top of that, now the kinsman redeemer has the responsibility to care for that family the rest of their lives. So he loses all the purchase money and... Who knows how much money he's spending on taking care of a family. The cost was extremely high to be the kinsman kinsman redeemer. So for the first kinsman redeemer, the reason he could not redeem the family was because the cost was too high. At this, the kinsman redeemer balked and said, in that case, I'm not able to redeem it without risking my own inheritance. Uh, Some other translations say, without risking my own estate. The first kinsman redeemer wanted the land without the intimacy. Exodus 19 and 20. They wanted Canaan without the intimacy with God that came along with Canaan. They wanted Canaan, but they didn't want to pay the price that was extremely high in order to inherit what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been promised. And so they spend that generation, do you know what happens? They never enter the promised land you remember this they get all the way up and they say you know what here's what we're gonna do we're gonna send spies just to make let's just make sure i know god promised i know we saw god part the red sea i know we saw god bring us out of egypt but let's just let's just make sure there aren't there aren't any any people too bad in this land before we do this you know we don't risk too much they go into the land, they got great, they got vines so big, multiple people are carrying them. It's like something from Avatar. You know what I mean? It's like this just stuff so big, all that. And uh, and they're like, man, this is the land flowing milk and honey? Absolutely. It's exactly as the Lord said. It's everything he said. But, but there's giants in the land. And everybody except for Caleb and Joshua who in Hebrew is a name ultimately for Yeshua. Joshua and Caleb say, we can do this, the Lord's on our side. All the rest of Israel say, there's no way, there's no way. And they never make it into the land, never. Never. They wanted the land, but they did not want the intimacy that came with the land. Because in order to have the intimacy, they would have to lay down their own estate. They would have to lay down that which their hands had made, whether it be mindsets, whether it be things they brought from Egypt, etc. They would have to lay down their safety and their comfort and their ideas, and they would have to lay down the trust that they didn't want to give God, they would have to lay that stuff down in order to go into intimacy with a God that would give them the land by way of the intimacy. They didn't want that. They wanted the land. Therefore, they wandered in a wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died off because they did not want what qualified them to get the land. This is what the first the first kinsman Boaz goes and says, "Hey, she's got this land. She's selling it. Do you want it? Absolutely, I'll take it. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this. If you get the land, you've also got to marry Ruth and you've also got to have a kid." And he says, "Hold up, that would threaten what I have. Therefore, I can't. I, I can't do that. You do it." But Boaz was willing to pay whatever the price because he wanted Ruth, not the land. That's the difference between the two kinsmen redeemers that are, that are held in contrast in the story. The first one wanted the land without Ruth. The second one, Boaz, wanted Ruth, and if the land came with it, amazing. And this is, this is how this story... Plays out, and then I'll I'll just tell you a few things, and then we'll be done. And I read it, but but having this in mind, I want to read this just one more time. Boaz married Ruth; they became one as husband and wife. Yahweh opened Ruth's womb as she bore a son. Then the woman, the women of Bethlehem, praise Naomi, praise Yahweh. uh, Yahweh, He never abandoned. You nor withheld from you a kinsman redeemer. May his name be famous in Israel. May this child renew your life and sustain you in your old age. May your daughter-in-law who loves you uh, dearly be more than to you than seven sons could ever be, for she has given you a wonderful grandchild. 16 Then Naomi took her grandson, cuddled him in her arms, cared for him as if uh, he were her own. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, "At last Naomi has a son." They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. What does David mean? Anybody? Beloved. Beloved. David was the father of who? Solomon, ultimately. Jesus. The first kinsman, I want you to hear, the first kinsman redeemer misses out on being included in the legacy of Jesus Christ because he was unwilling to risk his own inheritance. Boaz and Ruth give birth to beloved identity, and ultimately Jesus, because of a willingness to have intimacy at whatever the cost. So in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, they're all together in the upper room. Why are they together in the upper room? Mostly they're afraid, and a little bit because Jesus told them not to leave. You know what I mean? So a little bit because Jesus said, don't leave, but mostly because if we leave this room, we'll probably be killed. So for 10 days, they're in an upper room, and everybody in that upper room had, in order to follow Jesus, especially at that point, had given up everything. Everybody in that upper room had given up every single thing that would have made them X, Y, and Z in order to follow this Jesus that the Romans and the Pharisees and everybody else are trying to kill everybody who followed them. And for 10 days, they are in the upper room. Why are they in an upper room? Because they want intimacy at any time cost if we have to sit in this room the rest of our lives will sit in this room because we came here to get what he promised us go back to exodus 19 god says i'm here to marry you and they say that's great we'll take a law I'm here to make you my bride. That's amazing. We'd rather you be our deity that we worship by way of our, the works of our hands. Moses can go talk to you. He can come tell us what you have to say. As for us, we got golden calves to build, you know, etc. Right? We, and so, Exodus 19 is a rejection of intimacy for the land. Acts 2 is an acceptance of intimacy at any cost. So the writer Luke who is a doctor who is brilliant in Acts 2 is not writing just a it is a historical account, but he's not just writing a historical account. Every single person in the day that Luke wrote this, reading this would have immediately started picturing Sinai in their minds. No doubt Luke is writing about a Sinai redo on the day they celebrate the story of Ruth in Shavuot. Why? Because Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer that pictures Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, later on, who steps into the story and says, If it costs me everything, I'm willing to be your kinsman redeemer anyway. I'm not here for just, all right, John three sixteen. Jesus says, God, um, for God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, more important. God did not send his son into the cosmos to condemn the cosmos, but that through him the cosmos might be saved. He came into the creation to redeem the creation, but not because he wanted the creation without you, because he wanted you and the creation that came with you. So Jesus did not come into our um, creation. He did not step into his creation in order to redeem a land and maybe a handful that that join in with the land. He entered into his creation to redeem you and I and the land which comes with you and I. So in Acts two, when they begin to, when Luke begins to write this account. What he's writing is a story that says, after all our kinsman redeemer did, we got back what we forfeited by way of not willing to pay the price. Before I read this and then I'm done. A little more backstory. Am I giving you too much today? Y'all wouldn't even tell me if I was, so that's okay. But y'all lie. So, um, which is great, it's amazing. I, um, in, in, in Genesis 1, in Genesis one, when Adam is raised from the dirt, Adam meaning man could also mean mankind, raised from the dirt, God breathes into his nostrils. Okay, uh, J- Jewish teachers, rabbis taught this. When when Jesus would breathe into his nostrils, it wasn't it wasn't a and I've taught this before. It wasn't like Isaiah's Adam, I'm God. Okay, it wasn't like all right, you ready, Adam? You know what I'm saying? And then it's just like, oh, Lord, praise God. Hey, what's up? You know. No. It was Adam was raised up. I'm not going to do this to you, Isaiah. I would probably get sued. But Adam was raised up, okay? And Jesus walks right up mouth to mouth and breathes. And Adam comes to life. Breath. Pneuma, okay, Holy Spirit, um, spirit. the word spirit has been so jacked up in our day and age, we don't even know what it means. Mo- when I say spirit, most of you think that Casper the ghost is floating around on the inside of you, that when you die, floats away and goes into a distant heaven, where he's handed a harp and a diaper and a cloud and all that. Now, all day long, praise God, it's heaven. no, 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 Lord. That's what Plato taught. But thank God we're not in a church of Plato philosophy. We're in a church of the kingdom. Um, we just don't know that for a lot yet, but one of these days we will get out of the Plato philosophy stuff. So, um, in verse 2, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and all throughout the New Testament, the word spirit, pneuma, has three meanings wind, okay, spirit, and breath. Breath. So, you could maybe it might help you to read instead of Holy Spirit, maybe read Holy Breath. If that helps get the idea of Plato out of your mind. But what this is talking about is not some other than part of God entering into our world to create absolute chaos in a room where people are gathered together. Falling out in the spirit, speaking 87 different languages, and now all of a sudden they've got power from on high. Sure, they got power, sure, they got tongues, sure, they got fire, but Luke is writing in the story of Acts to tell us something even deeper than now they're bilingual. You know what I'm saying? So let me read this. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, Acts. You don't have to turn there, I'd rather you listen to it anyway. When the day of Pentecost came, okay, now again, what does Pentecost mean? Anybody remember? Fifty. Okay? Shavuot. Okay? So when the fiftieth day came, you could say, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing... Listen, 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 listen. Think Exodus 19. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind from heaven came and filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues, there's the word, of fire, again, Exodus 19 imagery, that separated and came to rest on each of them. Okay? Stop, Lord. Stop right there. Lord, help me. Help me, help me, help me, help me. Acts 19 and 20, Exodus 19 and 20. They're staying at a distance. Why? Because they haven't consecrated themselves. Listen to what it says, okay? And when the Lord shows up in Exodus 19, it's through wind, it's through thunder, and it's through fire. On the day of Pentecost, they were all together. Suddenly the sound of a blowing, violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. What happened in Exodus 19? They stayed at a distance. What happens in Acts 2? Mouth to mouth. Okay, you see what Luke is doing here. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, there's that word, and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? Shavuot. Okay, verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Each one, each one heard in their own language things being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, "Aren't all these Jews? Or excuse me, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language?" And then he gives a list of all these. I won't go through all those, but um, in verse eleven. Uh, Both Jews and converts to Judaism, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. All right. So what, what is the significance of the statement? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Let me say it like this. And in this point, they are mediating the wonders of God in our own tongues. Which is exactly what the people of God were called to do in Exodus 19. You will be for me a kingdom of priests to the world. Do you, okay, do you, This really excites me. Maybe this is just like, well, man, this is great. Who cares? I'm telling you. So then it goes on. I'm going to stop here. Isaiah, you can go ahead and hop up so everybody thinks we're getting close. Verse 14. Then Peter, (laughs) I'm just playing with you. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen to me carefully. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel the prophet says this in the last days, the word days there is age. It's, it's, it's the last age. Okay? Um, so not the last like 10 days or the last number of days. It's the last time, it's the last age, okay? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit or breath on all people, Jew and Gentile. Exodus 19, okay? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit on those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Which is from? the sun will be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the lord and everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved will be and i taught you this what is saved we could say means made whole everyone so, so who calls on the name of the lord will be made whole will be made right will be healed will be preserved. So what 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 am I telling you today? What we celebrate on on days like the resurrection, Easter and Christmas and Pentecost and what we celebrate is far greater than typically what you and I have thought we are celebrating because if we miss the context of events that happen, we're gonna miss the majority of the point of the entire story. Which, in the book of Acts, like I said, we 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 growing up, we're taught that the only thing Acts two shows us is that we now have power, which is included in that story. Amazing, we have power. That's amazing. But but what Acts two is is really showing us is what was forfeited by a group of people unwilling to enter into intimacy has now been recovered by way of a kinsman redeemer that was willing to risk anything it cost him personally in order to get you back to where you were designed to be. And when that happens, what does it produce? Beloved identity, David. which is exactly the gospel we're to bring to the world the gospel that we're to bring to the world is not just that it was definitely not you're you're nothing but snow-covered crud just powdery crud but praise god jesus oh that's not the gospel The the word gospel means good news, euangelion. Good news, that's not good news, it's awful news. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. You thought you were snow-covered dung, but you weren't. And the cross was to prove to you that you were wrong about what you thought about who you were. The gospel is not, you're awful, but praise God Jesus stepped into your story. The gospel is Jesus stepped into your story to show you what you thought you were is actually false. You're not just you're not just a clean adopted son or daughter of God because of what Jesus did. You were always a son or daughter of God. Jesus stepped into the story to prove it to you. Well brother, I've never heard that that's my, that's the point. That's the point is that we've got a world that thinks they know what's flowing from the church and they think they know the gospel that's being taught in the church, which is why they don't come in the church. And most of the time they're right. But we've got a world that believes if I ever step in to a place where I hear the gospel, all I'm going to hear is how bad I am. And like I said, most of the time they're right. But, but if we could allow our kinsman redeemer to step into the narrative of his own creation step into the narrative and reveal to us what has been real since genesis 1 the gospel changes and now everybody no one on planet earth past present or future is stepping into a situation they get to by way of their works Paul says it like this. This did not happen by works so that no man can boast. In other words, you cannot get into the gospel by way of something you do, and God arranged it like that in order for you to only be able to say thank you for receiving something you could have never earned, right? So what we have is we have a message that we are inheriting, and it's not just us, it's a handful of others that we're inheriting where just one degree shift is taking place on the inside of us, where we stop, where we refuse to stop, let me say it like this, at you are clean now. Everybody agrees on that. If you've repeated a prayer, you go to church, now you're clean. Here's where things start to go like this. We're inheriting a gospel that says you were never actually dirty. You thought you were. Because the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. The story doesn't start in Genesis, it starts in Genesis 1. Where God named humanity before humanity was able to put their hands on one thing. Before humanity had the opportunity to touch a tree they weren't supposed to touch, God said, before you have an opportunity to throw the whole story off, I'm going to name you so that when you get to Genesis 3, the only thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to suddenly have a knowledge of something you weren't designed to have a knowledge for. But there's going to come a day where I step into that knowledge and undo it from the inside out. But before that happens, I'm going to start with you are very good. What, what what would happen if we started out there? What if we started with that? You are very good. That's jump street. Well, brother, you don't know my story. doesn't matter. Very good was spoken over humanity before all of us existed. You're very good before you took a breath. Why? So that when you took a breath, even at your worst... Even at your worst, you had no authority to re-identify yourself. Do you know what the word authority comes from? Those of you that have been here. Author. Okay? What What is an author? Someone who writes story. An originator of a story. So authority is only given to an author or an originator. You and I did not originate ourselves. God originated us. You and I originate in God. Therefore, the only one with the authority to identify us is God, not you and I. The most authority you and I have is how we operate within how our author has identified us. Y'all good? you say the most authority that you and I have is how we live in how we have been identified but we cannot identify ourselves and that's where the gospel is going crazy is we think that we have complete authority by way of Greek philosophy. We think we have complete authority to re-identify ourselves so we'll get people to try to do things to re-identify themselves because their actions unidentified themselves and that's false. You have no authority to unidentify yourself, but you have complete authority to live lost even though you've been found by way of Jesus. That's what lost means. How can you be lost if you've never been found? How can you be lost if you're not owned? We, so we use this language, but we got to save the law. Well, what does it mean for you to be lost? Jesus tells us in Luke 15, a woman had 10 coins, And she lost one, and she turned the entire house over until she found that coin because of its value to her. At no point did the pearl, or the coin, or the sheep, or excuse me, the sheep, or the coin, or the lost son, at no point did any of them change their ownership. Amen? Jesus says this. He says, let me tell y'all a story. And he tells stories about things that have been misplaced, okay, lost. Their ownership was determined before they were ever lost. Their ownership did not change through the period of them being lost. And the owner was willing to tear the absolute house down to find the coin. And in the second part of the parable... Jesus says that the woman was willing to seek until she found. Same with the prodigal son. The prodigal son starts at home, and he's a son. When he runs away, doesn't change the fact that he's a son. He's laying in the slop, eating the stuff the pigs are eating, but he's still the son. You see this? And when he comes home, when he comes home, The father restores his sonship completely to him, not because he did anything to work his way back, but because he was still the son, even though he spent a period of time in the slop with pigs. There's so many people outside of the church today that are in the absolute slop eating pods with pigs. But it does not change the fact that their sons are daughters. Here's, see here's the tough part here's the tough part and then i'll pray here's the tough part is that everything i'm saying to you right now i just i just quote i don't how many scriptures did i just quote lord many multiple and yet it's a this is a brand new, this is brand new to us where where's this been i never heard this you know this brand spanking new see we thought it was the church against the world we thought we were against the world we thought we were the one we're we're the ones who are going to be raptured away lord we're the ones that are going. We're we're going to be snatched away, and we're going to watch we're going to watch the world burn. So every time Russia invades Ukraine on a deeper level, part of us is saying, "Post pray for pray for Ukraine," while at the same time we're scheduling rapture parties because we're getting real excited because apparently Russia is in the Book of Exodus or uh, Ezekiel, and it's part of the uh, Antichrist agenda to overthrow the world. And Jesus is going to come back and rapture the world because Putin decided to invade a country. Yeah, right, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Right? Right? No, 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 no. What if we instead saw those outside of the church as those who are actually designed to be inside of the church, but no one's ever told them? No one's ever told talk- All they've ever experienced from the church is that they're the for- they're the foreigners. You know? No, 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 no. They're just as in the family as you and I are. Somebody's just got to go tell them. Somebody's got to go into the distant country and seek until they find. Someone's got to say the kinsman redeemer has come and redeemed the family and redeemed the land and is giving birth by way of a bride, the church, to a beloved identity that would save the cosmos. That's the gospel. That's what I'll give my I'll give my life for that. You know what I'm saying? I will give my entire life for that. What I won't give my life for is to tell people that there's something they already believe they are, which is scum. I won't give, but I will give my life to look somebody in the eyes, like I did. I did this multiple times this week. Look somebody in the eyes that believes all hope is lost, and look them in the eyes and say, "No, hope is never lost." You're exactly where you every one of the days of your life was written in his book before one of them came to be. It's not a surprise. He's not surprised by your he's not surprised by what you have done. He met what you have done and redeemed it before you were born and ever did it. We have a Kinsman Redeemer. That's the, that's the celebration of Pentecost. And the testimony to our kinsman redeemer is the fact that the very breath of God is in you and me that's how we know that's how we know we were given a language to tell the globe that the very breath of God has come into our worlds met us where we are and filled us from the inside out so I'm going to end with this I'm going to pray oh Matt did you erase this? thank you perfect Trinity okay father son and spirit Trinity God God is one yet expressed in three I like one in three more than I like three in one because one in three is working from the inside out three in one kind of has the connotation you're working from the outside in that Jesus the spirit and the father are God no God is Jesus the father and the spirit little detail doesn't really matter but here's the crazy thing I'm going to end with this end with this And it's still earlier than I normally get done. So, you know. This is why this Kinsman Redeemer stuff matters. What Jesus says. Let me read this. Philip spoke up. This is in John 14. Philip spoke up. Lord, show us the Father and that will be all that we need. Jesus replied, Philip I've been with you all this time, and you still don't know who I am. How could you ask me to show you the Father? Anyone who has looked at me has seen the Father. Don't you believe that the Father is living in me and that I am living in the Father? Even my words are not my own, but come from the Father. He lives in me and performs miracles through me. Uh, Believe that I live as one with my Father, and the Father lives as one with me, or at at least believe because of the mighty miracles I've done. Listen. I tell you this timeless truth. The person who follows me in faith, believing in me, will do the same mighty miracles I do, even greater, because I go to my Father. For I will do whatever you ask me to do when you ask in my name, and that is how the Son will show that the, what the Father is really like and bring glory to Him. Ask me anything in my name and I'll do it for you. And later he says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, the Father's in me, and that I am in you. What Jesus is saying is that by way of Jesus, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is fully God, fully mankind. Jesus steps into our humanity and ascends to the Father, which means through Jesus, mankind has now ascended to the right hand of the Father. To prove it, the Spirit leaves where He is enthroned with Father and Son And not only is enthroned there, but indwells every single person in Christ. So you're seated at the right hand of the Father through Jesus, and you're filled with God completely and fully by way of the Spirit, which means you and I are not only seated here, but we remain and move and act and have our being from here by way of this spirit dwelling in you and I this this is the gospel is that you live your life as if you were here and God was here and there was a distance to be crossed and the way you cross that distance is by way of works We lived our entire lives believing we were here, God was here. The way we crossed the chasm is by working good enough, is by being perfect enough, is by doing everything that we could possibly do in order to make us like him. Jesus shows up into the picture and becomes humanity to show us that A, there is no distance, that B, we've always been in Christ from the foundations of the earth, and see, Jesus undoes the formlessness of Hamartia in order to reveal to us that this is where we've always been, that this is where we'll always be. Therefore, I'm going to fill you with the very breath that I filled Adam's nostrils with. Jesus takes us from a place of Genesis 3 back into the garden of Genesis 1 and he does it by way of the same breath that Adam received that brought him to life. And we have the gall to believe that humanity is still on the outside looking in after all of that. Paul says it like, Paul, Paul dares people to not trample on the sun. What does that mean? It means Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father, having done every single thing that they did in what we call the gospel, having done all of that, ascended, the veil torn, the Spirit filling us, us being one with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the perichoresis spin that never ends, still living on the outside. And the way we believe, this is what religion teaches us, the way we believe we get back in is by a new law called religion. If you repeat this prayer, if you do this, if you go to church, if you do all this, if you, if you pray the prayers and read the Bible and all that other stuff, if you do all that stuff, then one of these days when you die and your salvation is, is made full, when you die, which means die, dying is really your salvation, um, if you die, one of these days you'll stand before God and he'll go through the checklist of every single thing. Check, check, done that, did that. Didn't do that. Mark off. Check, check. Okay, you just got enough points. Enter in, brother. That's, what, that's You know what I'm saying? No, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this has been proven wrong by way of God who also became man. Man I, I I wish I had 5 hours. I wish I did. If I had 5 hours I could convince you of all this stuff but I don't. Okay? I mean technically I guess I do but I'm 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 going to let you off. But you know what I'm saying? But Be- because Jesus is fully God, fully man. And the only way that's possible is if man has the capacity to live in a reality that is fully man and fully God. How much of God is the Holy Spirit? which means if the Spirit's in you and I, 100% of God is in you and I, which means at this very moment, we are 100% God and 100% man. Jesus came as the one to show us who you and I are and to show us who the Father is because our mindset of who humanity was, and by way of that, our mindset of who the Father was had gone so astray, we didn't know either of them. So he comes as man so that we could look at him and see this is what I was always designed for. And he comes as God so that we could look at him and say everything we believed about God we cannot find in this man is wrong. And in one man proves both the identity of God and the identity of of mankind from now into eternity which makes complete sense because we were created with this statement. Let us make man in our image and likeness. We viewed ourselves as unlike God. Jesus came as us and God to prove us we're exactly like God. That's what St. Athanasius said. Jesus became man so that man could become God. He's not talking about you and I are God. He's talking about you or I are included in God, absolutely. So let me pray. I know that was college course 10.0, but anyway but this, I mean, this is burning in my guts right now. This is, I mean, it has been for a year. Burning in my guts that if we could if we could get this, if we could get the kinsman redeemer, if we could get the intimacy that has produced beloved identity within us, there would never be another day we question who we are ever again. And there would never be, we'd never question who other people are ever again. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. Um, Yahweh, this is th- there is some supernatural stuff going on in here. And when I say supernatural, I mean you're taking some natural stuff and you are bringing some super understanding to it that is allowing us to step into the fullness of the gospel. I mean, that's what you've been doing for the past year is you've been unveiling the gospel to us in a way that only a group of people flexible enough to lay down religion when needed could see. And because of that, there is a freedom. There is a love. There's a presence. There's an intimacy that have come to a group of people. That is unlike anything I've ever believed, we even had access to, but everything I ever hoped we had access to. Let me ask you while your eyes are closed. Is there anybody in the room? And I know we've been through this for a year, but... Is there anybody in the room that you have, let me say it like this. You've been the first redeemer who was willing to receive the stuff the Lord has spoken over you as long as it doesn't come at the cost of the things that your own hands have made. Is there anybody that would have the guts to just say like, yeah, that's definitely been my mindset? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. I want to pray um, because I, I believe there's a lot of us who maybe operate in that. I know I do a lot, and we don't even recognize it. Lord, I pray over the hands and the ones that didn't raise their hands that you would allow us to see that there is a trust available to the lovers of God that is willing to say, I want you in fullness at whatever the cost. And the things that we receive, the the first kinsman redeemer believed he was going to lose everything by stepping into what he was called to. And the truth of it was, he lost everything he was designed for by not trusting enough to step into it. Jesus would have been the son of this unnamed kinsman redeemer. So the kinsman redeemer died with his own inheritance, but he missed out on the inheritance he was actually designed for. Give us an eternal view of things. Something that cost us something that our hands have made now pales in comparison to what we gain by trusting and following the Lord. And that could be anything. I mean, that could be anything. Anything. But whatever it is, I pray that you would reveal it to us and undo it when needed. In Jesus' name, I pray that going into this summer that we would have encounters with you that we have only ever dreamed of. And we love you and honor you in this place. Amen.